We talk a lot about prayer and how we should pray. And we spent a lot of time this past year, particularly in our Wednesday night Bible studies and in a series of messages I preached through the first part of last year, focusing on prayer and what it means to pray and how we pray. But what we're, I'm in a series of messages right now focusing rather on how Jesus prays for us. Instead of us just focusing on how we pray, how does He pray for us? You see, as you and I understand how Jesus prays for us, we will then be able to align our lives with His prayer life for us. And in so doing, we begin to discover and to walk and to live in the will of God. So we're going through the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, asking ourselves the question, how is Jesus praying for us so that we can align our lives with Him and then live out His will for us? Because He's literally praying in the 17th chapter of John His will for us, what He wants to accomplish in our lives. If we understand that, we move with Him and what He's doing in our lives. If we don't understand that, then often we pull away and go in the other direction of what He wants to accomplish in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 17, John's Gospel, chapter 17, and as you turn there, allow me to give you the background of this passage of Scripture. John is recounting an incident that happened the night before the Lord Jesus was crucified. He went with his disciples to what we know as the upper room, which is, if I'm correct, in the southwestern section of the city of Jerusalem. And when he finished having celebrating the Passover, which he began as the Lord's Supper that night, he had to head towards the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the opposite side of the city of Jerusalem. In between where he was in the upper room and where he was going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane was what was known as the Temple Compound. It was called the Temple Compound because it not only contained the temple building, but it contained various courts, the courts, court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the Gentiles, and those courts were based on who was allowed in each of those courts. And those courts were places of public prayer. They were often crowded with people, and this being the Passover, they would have been particularly crowded. And it was not unusual at all to walk into those courts and to see and hear people standing there praying out loud. That was basically the function of those courts. People could not go into the temple itself. Only the priests were allowed to go into the temple. So if you were a non-priest, you would go into your specific court, court of the women. That was a court that ladies could be in, court of the men. Uh, that was Jewish men, court of the Gentiles. That was the last court in that a Gentile could go in. And you would go into those courts and you would stand there and you would pray. And everybody around could hear you pray. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem with how the Jews stand outside the Wailing Wall and pray, that's basically the idea of what was going on in those courts. So we believe that as Jesus made his way from the upper room towards Gethsemane, and as he approached the temple compound, he took his disciples into the compound area, which would not have been unusual. They would probably would have expected him to stop and pray there. But he begins to pray in a way that would have surprised them because he begins to pray and to engage in what we call intercessory prayer, that is standing between them and God and praying specifically for them 
and for us. And the 17th chapter of John's gospel is the account that John gives us as he would have stood there listening to Jesus pray. And sometime later as he began to pen this gospel, his mind would have wandered back to that night as they are standing in the temple court. And as he and the disciples no doubt would have stood there almost in shock as they listened to Jesus pray for them. John's gospel chapter 17, and we're going to begin with verse 14, and my message outline is in your Rocky Mount connection. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I want to go back and read those verses again. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Now here is his request, his prayer on our behalf. But that you, speaking to the Heavenly Father, but that you keep them, key verb there, keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, as Jesus begins to pray, and as he moves in this prayer, he says, Lord, I have kept them by your word. How does he keep us? He keeps us by the word. He said, Father, you gave me the word. I have given that word to your disciples, and now I'm asking you to keep them by the word. And what Jesus does here in this prayer is he begins to speak here of what I call two different systems. Systems of thought, of how we think, and of how we live our lives. He says, there's this system of thought by my word. And that is that I gave them your word, Lord. As they listen to your word, as they take your word into themselves, as they live under the authority of your word, they begin to see life and approach life and make decisions. And everything they do in life is directed by and guided by the word. And so what Jesus had done for the last three and a half years is through his teaching ministry... And through his life, the way he lived his life, he was constantly teaching them, this is how you make decisions by the Word of God. This is how the Word of God impacts these various aspects of your life. This is how you see life and approach life. I'm going to give you, Jesus was basically saying to his disciples, God's perspective on life. So that who God is and what God wants to do in your life is informed and impacts every aspect of who you are. How you handle your money, how you handle your relationships with other people, how you handle life, how you handle death, you name it. Every aspect of life, Jesus was giving them divine knowledge, divine perspective, God's perspective on it, make decisions, face it, walk through it, experience it by the Lord's will, by the Lord's guidance. That is what he means by making those decisions and living by his word. Now, there is the other system, and the other system that Jesus identifies here, he calls the world's system. And he refers to, he says, I'm not of the world and they are not of the world. Now, what is this world system about? This world system Jesus refers to is the system of our culture. It's how people think and how they approach life, make decisions, everything that we see in life. But it is a system of thinking, acting, believing, approaching life, you name it, 
the area of the subject that is warped by sin and that has absolutely no sense of the presence and power of God in it. So that whatever the particular area is in my life, if I'm operating by the world systems, I don't consult the Lord about it. I don't look for any guidance from Him. I just handle the particular issue, the particular problem, whatever it is, in my wisdom, my way of thinking, whatever the culture tells me. Now, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, John describes this world system that... We all face every day and we are tempted to operate by. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. And listen to how he describes it. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Now notice the three phrases that he uses here. He calls it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says, this is not from the Father, it's from the world. In other words, when we operate by the desires of our human self, our human flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life, we are not operating and thinking and making decisions by what the Father God would have us, not from the Word, but whether we're operating out of this world's culture. Now, he talks about the desires of the excuse me, the desires of the flesh. That's internal. That's inside of us. It's anything, any desire inside of us that pulls us away from God, that takes us down a path that takes us farther away from the Lord Jesus. And so the first aspect he gives here of this world's way of thinking is that inside of me, I've got desires. All of us struggle with it. And those are desires that want to pull away from the Lord and go in our own direction. It's that thought life we have that tends to wander in all kinds of directions away from God. It's those desires that want to walk away from the Lord. Then he next talks about the desires of the eyes. That's what's external. That's what's outside of us that tempts us to walk away from the Lord. Remember back in the story of David and Bathsheba. David walks out on the top of the roof of his palace one night, and he looks out. He sees this beautiful woman who is bathing, and he begins to look at her, and his look turns into a stare, which turns into lust, which turns into an obsession, etc., etc. What happens? It's the lust of the eyes. The temptation was outside of David, and he began to focus on the temptation. And so this idea of the world is when I begin to look at things and I see the lack, fail to see the lack of value that they have, I fail to see the damage it's going to do to myself and to others if I go down that road. And that's the desires of the eyes. And then he talks about the pride of life, and that is the idea of arrogance, the idea of outranking other people, having wealth, having status. The pride of life is when I'm always comparing myself to other people and trying to make sure that I come out on top compared to them. You know, they say that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And when I begin to compare myself with other people, I begin to lose joy in my life. Because I'm trying to figure out constantly if I stack up better than they do. That's that pride of life, that arrogance. I don't need God. I don't need Him in my life. I don't need anything that He's got to give me. I am totally sufficient in and of myself to make it through. That pride of life. In the view of our culture and our society, 
is so often that we are guided by human opinion and by human emotion. Now, what is the ground of this world? In other words, what is the the very basis and essence of this world's way of thinking that John just laid out with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he lays it out. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And notice the term that Paul uses here. This present darkness... And what Paul is saying, what he's teaching, is that we are caught in spiritual warfare whether we want to be or not. And that our real struggle is not against human beings, though we are tempted to think it is. But our real struggle is a spiritual warfare struggle that we are caught in. It's a present darkness that we are in. And that we are wrestling with. And that is the the very essence of this idea where Jesus speaks of the world. When he says that they are not of the world as I am not of the world, Jesus is saying, I am not operating out of this darkness. I'm not caught in this darkness. But folks, we live every day in spiritual warfare. Our society, our culture is plunged into the middle of of this spiritual warfare, this present darkness. It is the ultimate influence on the culture. It is the ultimate influence on thinking because it seeks to get us, uh, pull us away from God and to pull us into bondage. This present darkness is also the idea, I think, of discouragement. Some of the ancient Writers in Christian history refer to it as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. When we go through seasons in our lives, when we are so tempted to give up and to give in and to just say, you know, I am through with life or I'm through with trying to serve the Lord and we get so discouraged by all the mess that's coming after us. Martin Luther was the founder of the Protestant Reformation. And he was uh, tremendously used of the Lord in so many capacities. But Martin Luther struggled with depression all of his life. And, and when the, in the 1500s, after the Protestant Reformation had begun, Luther was in more trouble than he knew what to do with. He had the civil authorities after him. He had the religious authorities after him. He had the power of the Roman Catholic Church after him. I mean, you name it, and he was in trouble with it. And so his friends took him, and they put him up in a tower called the Castle of, of, Whit, of I want to say Wittenberg, but I think that's wrong. Uh, anyway, they put him in this castle tower, and he's up there all alone, and he's being hit up in this tower because if he, he's known where he is, they're going to catch him and kill him. And he began to write about what he was going through, and he said, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? How many times have you asked yourself the question, is this really worth it? And he had had a mentor in his life 
that had told him this. Luther, look to the wounds of Christ. Look to the wounds of Christ. And what his mentor was trying to say to him is, every time you get down and you get depressed, don't focus on the cause of your depression and your discouragement. Rather, look to the wounds of Christ because his wounds for you on the cross will tell you how much he loves you and you are never separated from the love of God. You are never separated from the love of God. And so as Luther sat in that castle wondering what was going to happen to him, isolated and alone, he began not to focus on the depression and the frustration, but to focus on the wounding of Jesus for him on the cross and to realize that even in that castle, he was wrapped in the love of God for him. Now, how does he deliver us from this present darkness? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has delivered us from the domain, the power of the darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. What Paul is saying there is that He has acted, Jesus has acted, to deliver us from this present darkness. We live in a world that is impacted and influenced by this present darkness, but we have been delivered from it. We are delivered people living in the midst of a sea of bondage. But we have been delivered from this, and He has not just delivered us from it, but He has also transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And notice the word kingdom there. It means that we have been transferred to live under the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not living under the authority of the darkness of this world. I am rather living under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of what I'm going through. Now let me illustrate somewhat of what I'm talking about here. i got some Play-Doh here. And all of y'all probably remember playing with Play-Doh when you grew up. And maybe you play with Play-Doh with kids in your home. Now, Play-Doh is dough that you play with. State the obvious. This Play-Doh is going to take the shape and the form of whoever's hands it is in. This Play-Doh is in my hands. I can shape it. And I can form it because it's in my hands. And however I shape it and form it, it's going to be determined by what's in my mind that I want to shape it into. And by what my fingers do with it. And how my fingers touch it and how my fingers work with it. So what's up here is coming through my fingers and it's shaping and molding the Play-Doh. What he's saying in this verse is that the world is trying to get its fingers all over us. It's trying to shape us and mold us by what it has in mind for us. And what Jesus has acted to do is to take us out 
of the hands of this world and to place us in His hands so that what He is doing is that He is shaping and molding us by what's in His mind and by His hands. Now, when this world shapes us and molds us, what it's got in store for us is not out of love, and it will take us into bondage. What He shapes and molds is out of His love for us. I want you to remember this. His hands on our lives are the only hands that will touch our lives that have got nail scars in them. When He begins to roll over our lives and shape us in His hands, remember that our lives are rolling all over the scars that are in His hands because those scars, those wounds of Christ speak of how much He loves us and how committed to us He is. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 14 of John's Gospel, chapter 17. He says, the world has hated them. He says, I gave them your word, and the world hated them. That's a strong word. The Greek word there, translated hated, means the world's been indifferent to them. It has despised them. It has disregarded them like they are trash, have no value or even a detriment. Catch what Jesus is saying, because this is tough. He's saying, when you receive my word and you live by my word, the world around you, the culture, is going to do what? It's going to be indifferent to you. It's going to despise you. It's going to disregard you. It's going to say you have no value, even a detriment to us. Now, we're in the midst of that. So what does Jesus say he's going to do? What is he praying for us? Verse 15. He says, Lord, would you keep them? Father, would you keep them from evil? Now, he says something that's sort of tough here that we sort of, in a way, wish he wouldn't have said. John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. How many times have we wanted to ask God to take us out of the world? Lord, could you get me out of this situation? Could you remove this person from my life? Every once in a while, and I understand this, but every once in a while I hear Christians say, I just wish God would just get me out of this. But Jesus didn't pray that for us. He did not pray that God would take us out of the world. Even though we'd want to bang down the doors of heaven sometimes and ask Him to take us out of the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see what's going on in our culture and in our society today, I just want to pray Jesus would come back in the next five minutes and get us out of here. But that's not what Jesus prayed for us. He didn't say, Lord, take them out. He says, I did not pray that you take them out. You see, Jesus has never prayed that we would find a golden parachute or that we would find an escape route. What he prays is for you and I to walk in victory in the midst of the present darkness. He does not pray for us to have an escape route. What he prays is for you and I to walk in the victory that he's got for us in the midst of what we're going through and what we face. So, we got to face the evil. we got to deal with the evil. we got to engage the evil. What is the evil? He says, I want to pray that you would keep them from the evil one. The idea of the, e- the word evil and the concept of evil in the New Testament is that it is an active force that takes pleasure in hurting others, 
Matthew, in his gospel, identifies evil as murder, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. This can be translated, as the ESV does, as the evil one. The Bible says in 1 Peter that Satan is a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he may devour. So what Jesus, the picture that the New Testament gives us and what Jesus is talking about here when he says keep them from the evil one is that Satan is literally walking around like a roaring lion and he is waiting to eat us up. Now follow this, the phrase that he uses, he's a roaring lion. What is the first thing a lion does when he comes up to his prey? He roars. Why does the lion roar? Because that intimidates the victim. That scares the victim. It paralyzes the victim to be in fear. And then he can jump on the prey and eat it up because that victim is literally petrified in fear. What does Satan do to us? He scares us. He intimidates us. He paralyzes us because Satan knows that if he can scare us and intimidate us and paralyze us, He's got us right where he wants us. Chewing us up at that point is no big deal because we're not going to put up a fight because we are so scared and paralyzed that we won't put one foot in front of the other. We won't lift a hand to fight him at all because we're so paralyzed with the fear and the intimidation. So he says, I want you, Father, to keep them from the evil one. He's saying here, I don't want you to take them out. And I'm not asking you to take them out. But what I am asking is that while they are in the midst of the darkness, while they are in the midst of this world, while they got to live in it, that, Lord, you would act to keep them from the evil one, keep the evil one from getting the victory in their life, the power in their life. Follow me on this. What Jesus is praying for you and I is not to pull us out of the fight, not to pull us out of the opposition, not to pull us out of the toughness, not to pull us out of the darkness. But what he's praying is that the power of God will be so operative in our lives, in the midst of what we're going through, that we will walk out of it victorious. That we will walk out of it in better shape than what we walked into it. That we will know a portion of the grace of God and the power of God and the love of God and the glory of God in the midst of what we are going through. So the next time we're in that present darkness and in that struggle, instead of saying, God, get me out, say, God, fill me up. God, empower me. God, pull yourself out. Release by the power of the Holy Spirit what you've got for me so that we walk out of this in the victory, Jesus, that you already secured for me on the cross. That is what he's wanting us to do. Now, I, when I look at society and culture, I often think that the way Satan works, the way he runs around and roars, is what I call a sin of the season. And that is in a particular way that Satan seeks to put people in bondage and tear them down, and it's very pervasive. It, it, it just sort of covers a whole period of time. It is the, the way that Satan is doing it, and he's trying to tear people up, put people in bondage, etc. Now, this is my theory, but follow me on this. When I look at the culture 
and the world and the society that's around us right now. Whether you go on the internet, social media platforms, television, even one-on-one in society and culture. If I had to identify what I think is the, the thing that Satan is doing right now in terms of what I would call a sin that is prevalent in this season, it is anger. I am 59 years of age. I have never seen the United States so angry with itself. You can't hardly turn on a news broadcast that somebody is not ticked off with somebody. I'm not on much social media, but what part I am, there's just anger on it all the time. I discovered some time ago, I have a news app on my iPhone. And I discovered it becomes rather addictive. I mean, every time I turn around, I want to go to that. And I don't know if some of y'all have got this on your iPhone or not. It was very convicting. Every Sunday morning, when I eat without want it or not, I get this notification of how much time I spent on average per day on my iPhone. And I'm always in shock at how much time I was on the iPhone per day on some app. But I've discovered something. The more time that I'm on my news app, the more ticked off I am. I don't know if y'all have that problem or not, but the more time that I'm on that news app, the more upset I am. And the more I read the stuff, the madder I get. And I've discovered that the less time I'm on it, the more calm and peaceful I am and the the less Etc., etc. You know, if I don't want to get juiced up, all I got to do, and, and what I've discovered is that the news app is basically designed to keep me upset. Because you see, if I get ticked off, then for some odd psychological reason, I go back to get another shot so I can get ticked off again. I don't know if it's a, you know, an adrenaline rush or what, but I know, man, that first news article got me mad. This second one's really going to tick me off. And the one they got coming at 1 o'clock this afternoon is really going to get me ticked off. I can't wait. You know, it's at 1 o'clock I'm on there because they change it so many times during the day. And sometimes I notice that the way they phrase stuff that really gets me mad when I get into the gist of the story doesn't really have much in it, but it's just the way they phrased it at the top, and sometimes it'll say they think something happened, or they suppose something happened, and just thinking that it might happen is enough to get you upset, etc., etc. And folks, if you look at our culture today, whether it's in politics, entertainment, whatever, how much out there is designed to get you mad and keep you mad? Now, there's a reason they're doing that to us. They make money off of it. I mean, the more time I spend on my, my news app ticked off, the more the advertising they put on there, which means they get paid more. I mean, I'm just sitting back there happy and all the time, and I'm not bothering to bother with it. And, you know, they don't make any money off of me being happy. <laughs> I write in their news app, so they keep, keep me ticked off. I'm on there, and they're making money. Why do politicians like to keep you and I upset? Because that's the way they get votes. They know we're going to run to cast our ballot, mad as a hornet, you know. So that's part of the way that they they do it. And so the whole system is designed to get us upset, to get us angry, and to keep us angry so that people can prosper off of our anger. If it, you know, tears our country up in the process, then so be it, you know, as long as they're getting their profit margins and all that kind of stuff. Now, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that I... 
go to play with Play-Doh, okay? I'm old enough to be in my second childhood. In my case, my third childhood. So let's say I'm going to go play with Play-Doh. And let's say that I go to play with Play-Doh, and some of you have got kids, you've seen this. And I am mad, and I am ticked off when I go to play with my Play-Doh. All right, I'm playing with my Play-Doh, and I got an attitude when I play with my Play-Doh. What is my Play-Doh going to look like when I get through with it with my anger? I'm going to be sitting there ripping my Play-Doh up and twisting it and bending it and tearing this Play-Doh up. And my Play-Doh is going to look contorted and messed up. And nobody's going to want to have anything that I've made with my Play-Doh after my anger has gotten through with my Play-Doh. And folks, what in the world do you think you and I look like when the anger gets through with us? What in the world does the body of Christ look like when our anger gets through shaping us? You see, if we're not careful, we're letting our anger shape us instead of Jesus shaping us. And as a Christian, regardless of what's going on around in my culture, Jesus is supposed to be shaping me, not my anger or somebody else's anger shaping me. Jesus' prayer was, keep them. The idea of keeping them is not that he sets us on the shelf and says, sit up there and look like a nice, beautiful Christian. It is rather the idea of the calling of God. He's calling us to a different set of values. He's calling us to be shaped by him. He's calling us that our thinking is shaped in after the thinking of the Lord Jesus, that our actions are shaped after and by Jesus, and that our attitudes are shaped by Jesus. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about, because this, this keeping is not static. It is active. On the cross, as Jesus was dying for three-plus hours, He was in a sea of anger and hostility and unfairness. And as he hung on the cross, he could have allowed the anger around him and expressed towards him to shape him. And if he had done that, what would it have looked like From the cross. If the anger of the people at the foot of the cross and the people who got him to the cross had shaped him and molded him, what would that have looked like on him? What would it have sounded like coming out of his mouth? I mean, he could have, with the power of Almighty God, literally damned every person along the way from Pilate to the soldiers to the authorities, etc., and killed them all right on the spot. But what does he do? He chooses in the sea of the world that he couldn't get out of, he did not escape from, he plunged himself into, into literally the darkness of the cross in this sea of anger. What did he do? He's hanging there on the cross, 
And after about two, pushing three hours, he looks down at these people that are spitting on him. And we say, hey, look down. Actually, when they crucified you in those days, they put you at eye level with people. So when it says that they spit on him, they didn't spit up and try to get him. They spit right into his face because he was level with them. He talks about him plucking his beard. The reason they were able to pluck his beard was because they could literally walk right up to him, look into his face, grab a hold of his cheek, and start ripping whiskers out. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now you think about that. He's got their spit rolling down the side of his face. Rolling into and infecting the places where his beard's been pulled out. And he's bleeding. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What's happening? He's being shaped by the word of the Father and the love of the Father. He's not being shaped by the sea of anger around him. And what happens towards the end of that experience There are two thieves that are being crucified. One blows him off. But there's another thief that keeps looking over there and watching him and keeps waiting to hear anger, keeps waiting to hear revenge, keeps waiting to say that this guy's the son of God and he's got God's power and he's surely going to step off his cross and kill all these people and beat them up and let them have it. But he doesn't see that. He hears forgiveness. He sees the shaping of the Father. And so what does the thief say to him? Three hours into it. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I don't understand everything about your kingdom, but I do understand that it's different from the kingdom we're in right now. I like what I see about your kingdom, Jesus. I want what's in your kingdom, Jesus. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus looks back and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Why did that thief make that request of Jesus? Because he saw something in Jesus so different from what he saw around Jesus. He didn't see the anger. He saw the power of the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And he said, that's what I want. And folks, I can't say this to you strong enough. In our culture today, if we will let Jesus shape us instead of our society shaping us, people sooner or later are going to say, we're living in a sea in a culture of anger, but I see the peace of God and the love of God, and I want that. If they look at us and don't see anything different than they see from the rest of the world, then what are they going to say? You're no different than anybody else. I don't really want what you've got. Folks, my job and our job as believers is not just trying to sell our particular viewpoints. We are here, forgive the way I'm going to put this, but we are here promoting and selling Jesus to our culture. That's our calling. And so they, they looked and they said, He said, I want what you've got. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So we got the choice of one or two paths. We can either take the world's path, living apart from God, ignoring him, letting this world set our values, our direction, our attitudes, our disposition. And that will lead to us, as our society is today, caught up in drugs, violence, loss of morals, family, you name it. Or... We can take the word and live by the word, powered by the Holy Spirit, where we're walking by his guidance, 
living under his authority. And people look at us and say, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what David Carr was discovering on those football fields and with his teammates. Living by the word. Father, keep them from evil. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this day that we can live and you calling us to live, to be kept from the power of the evil one and to be kept, Lord, by you. Jesus, we ask that you would shape our minds, shape our our hearts, shape our dispositions, our attitudes. Just mold us like that Plato, Lord, in your hands with your love. So that, Lord, what people see in us is a life and a mind and a heart shaped by Jesus that attracts people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may they see that. In a moment of silent prayer, let's invite the Lord Jesus to shape our lives by his word. Lord Jesus, may we put our lives at a place that you've got the first dibs on shaping us. Not this world, not ourselves, but you shape us in the only hands that have got nail scars in them because of how much you love us. And if you're listening today, whether it's in this room or through any of our social media platforms, as well as by radio, and you've never given your life to Jesus and let him begin to shape you, I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, take my life. And begin to shape my life. Tired of shaping it myself. Jesus, shape my life to follow you. In your name I pray.